Thank you, Dan and choir and instrumentalists uh, for leading us in beautiful worship this morning. Genesis 37. Genesis 37. I should say that my colorful coat was hand-sewn, custom-made by one of our Burmese congregations with whom we relate. And when I worship with them, I wear that coat with great pride, and I'm grateful for that gift. The very nature of luck, it would seem to me, indicates that luck is beyond scientific study. But apparently that's not the case, of course. Professor Richard Wiseman, the psychology department of the University of Hertfordshire, after studying 1,000 people, what he observed about good luck and bad luck has been published in a monograph entitled Luck Factor. After studying all these people, the professor concluded that indeed, some people seem to be prone to bad luck. He found the story of one woman who reported a 150-mile trip she was taking, and she was involved in eight car wrecks during that 150-mile trip. Can you imagine going to Lubbock and having eight wrecks by the time you get there? Not only was she unlucky on that road trip, she was unlucky in love. She joined a, a dating agency, and the uh, First date, on the way to the date, fell off his motorcycle and broke his leg and couldn't make the date. The second date, walked into a glass door and broke his nose and couldn't make the date. And, and finally, she got a guy who could make the date and agreed to marry her, but the church burned down the day before the wedding. She was, this sister was prone to bad luck. But are the events in our lives as they seem to be? There's an old story, I've told it once before, from the Chinese culture. A poor old farmer in China had a, a single horse, and he depended upon that horse for absolutely everything. One day, a bee stung that horse, and the horse ran away into the mountains, and the Chinese farmer searched for the horse. He couldn't find him, and he went home downcast. And all of his neighbors came to the Chinese farmer's house and said, We are so sorry about the bad luck of losing your horse. Chinese farmer said, mm -hmm, Bad luck, good luck, who's to say? A week later, the horse returns, followed by 12 wild horses back to the farmer. And now he has 13 horses. And the neighbors all gather around and say, we want to congratulate you on your good luck of gaining 12 horses. Chinese farmer said, I don't know. Good luck, bad luck. Who's really to say? His only son attempted to break in those wild horses and in the process broke his leg. All the neighbors came over and they said to the Chinese farmer, we are so sorry about your bad luck of your son breaking his leg. Chinese farmer said, ah, bad luck, good luck, I don't know. The Chinese provinces now go to war and every man 50 and under is drafted for battle. But his son could not go because of his broken leg. In the heat of the battle, every other Chinese man from their village died. The old Chinese farmer got to keep his boy because of the broken leg. Good luck? Bad luck? How can we know? The first thing I want you to see this morning in the story of Joseph is this. We're really in no position 
to make final judgments on the things that happen to us. We're really in no position to make final judgments on the things that happen to us. What may appear tragic, like your only horse running off or a broken leg, may turn out to be the very thing that blesses you. One of the mysteries of God, a good thing, a bad thing, it's, it's hard to say. The old man, the old Chinese farmer, showed an uncanny wisdom because he refused to utter the ultimate verdict on the circumstances of life until everything had run its course. We really won't know until eternity, will we? We have not created the universe, and therefore we lack the capacity to make the final determination of what is good or evil in our own lives. It is a mystery that we must be willing to accept. Wasn't it Paul who said that we know in part and we prophesy in part, and for now at least we see through our glass darkly or dimly? We are in no ultimate position to know. All of this reminds me of the, the story of Joseph. He was something of a, a teenage smart aleck. I can see him now, his chin is always cocked high, his shoulders are set back, and he, his mouth is always full of that verbal arsenal, ready to do battle, braggadocious battle with his brothers. Have you ever been around someone and their posture says, look at me? You're probably not around her very long if you can help it, but sometimes you have to be. Well, his daddy played favorites. The father had 12 sons, but for whatever reason, he picked out Joseph as his favorite, and the other brothers saw the favoritism from the father. He was spoiled rotten. You could smell him coming, as my grandmother would have said. You know someone like him. You know someone like that. Somebody sometime somewhere told them that the whole earth revolved around them and they believed it and lived their life as if they are the center of the universe. Can you imagine the jealousy? A father with 12 sons, he shops for a, a, at least 10 of them at the Dollar General store and gets, well, generic tennis shoes and no-name jeans and just whatever is on blue light special for the shirts. But his favorite son, Joe, he takes him to Foot Locker and he buys him Nike tennis shoes and then they go to Dillard's and he gets a Levi jeans and a polo shirt and well, the brothers look at their own clothes and then they look at Joe's and Joe says, easy on the threads, man, easy on the threads. What's going on? They wonder. Now, Jacob wasn't very fair. But now let's think about how Jacob learned to father. His father, Isaac, and his mother also played favorites, didn't they? Rebekah loved Jacob, and Isaac loved Esau. Why, Jacob himself grew up in a family where parents chose amongst the children and showed favoritism to one child over the other child, and now... Jacob's doing exactly what Isaac and Rebekah had done to him 
in Esau. What's he thinking? Strutting around in that colorful coat like a peacock at the San Diego Zoo. And to make matters worse, his mouth was unbearable. Hey, Reuben, Judah, Simon, come over. I had a dream last night, and let me tell you about it. We were all out in the fields, and we were gathering together the sheaves. And all of a sudden, mine sheaf stood up, and yours bowed down to mine. What do you think that might mean, that yours bows down to mine? Do you have any idea? Oh, really, really, little brother, we're going to bow down to you one day. Oh, it gets worse. Oh, I had another dream. What do you think it means? Why, the sun and the moon and the stars bowed down to me. The mother, the father, the brothers. And now even Jacob is put out and says, oh, yeah, right. I, your mother, and your brothers are going to bow down to you. Jacob sends Joseph's brothers out to Shechem to shepherd. And then he sends Joseph out to check on his brothers. He's daddy's little tattletale. He'll come back and say how things are going. He brings the word back, favorable or unfavorable, about his brothers. And as they're out at Shechem watching the flock, over the horizon they see. Now when someone walks with arrogance, you can see it in his gait. They saw him, and if you couldn't tell by the gait of his walk, you could tell by the color of his coat. Here he comes, that multicolored coat. He's strutting, prancing like a peacock, and his brothers say, Well, here comes that little dreamer. Let's kill him and, and say a beast devoured him. And then we'll see what comes of Joe's dreams. They ripped off his coat and they threw him down into a dry well, into a pit. And they enjoy the food, listening to Joseph whimper and cry and beg. The braggadocious one is now a beggar. And Reuben and Judah say, no, no, let's don't kill him. They had a little bit of a conscience. They love their daddy, too. Well, well, here's a caravan of the Ishmaelites, and they're carrying balm and myrrh to Egypt to trade. Let's sell him. That's worse than death. Let's sell him into slavery. Let the one who thinks everybody will bow down to him find himself a slave. And so they ripped off his coat and dipped it in the blood of a goat, and they went back to his father Jacob and they said as if they didn't know, Is this your boy's coat? The colors now dulled with the maroon color of blackened blood. Oh, it's my boy's coat, Jacob cries and says, I will never have a good day. I will go to my grave weeping for my son. Being thrown into a pit, being sold into slavery. Is that a good luck thing or a bad luck thing? Who's really to say? The second thing I want you to see in the story is this. We are not able to turn. We're not able to determine whether the obstacles in our life are good or bad. We are in no position to determine whether the obstacles in our life are good or bad. You see, sometimes God is at work 
and the valleys and the shadows of our life. And what seems to be a tragedy will turn into a triumph, being ripped away from your father that you love, from your brother. He loved Benjamin, his other brother the most, Joseph did. Being torn away from Jacob and Benjamin. Being thrown into a pit, being sold into slavery, it seems horrible. But he happens to be purchased, sold to one of Pharaoh's officers, a man by the name of Potiphar. And everything that Joseph touches, God blesses. And Potiphar soon realizes, if I'll just be quiet and let Joe run the household, I'm making more money, the other servants are happy, everything's managed well. Why, Potiphar didn't have a worry in the world as long as Joseph was in charge. And so Potiphar decided wisely, Joe, you're in charge of everything in my household. Make decisions as you will. But as he serves Potiphar, now, Joseph was a very nice-looking man. He, he was handsome. He, he appeared to have stepped off a GQ magazine. He, he looked that good. And, and Potiphar's wife began to ponder, probably reaching a little middle age now, could I still catch the eyes of a boy like Joseph? Besides, Joseph's a young man. Sensitive and kind. And Potiphar doesn't even recognize her anymore. Joseph, I'm available. I can't, I can't. You're beautiful, but I can't. Your husband, he trusts me. Joseph, I'm available. I couldn't, I never would. Joseph, I'm available. She grabs, he flees, the coat comes off. And now, for a second time, Joseph has been robbed of a coat. To prison he goes. He's naked. She's holding the coat. She had no choice but to scream and cry foul play. Now, here's the interesting thing to that story to me. If Potiphar had really thought that Joseph was making advances or violently attacking his wife, he wouldn't have gone to prison, would he? Maybe he knew. Maybe he knew. This time, it's not pit time, but it's prison time. There Joseph is in a foreign land in Egypt as a slave in prison for a crime he did not commit. Don't you know old Joe sitting in prison began to ponder? probably already forgotten those dreams about his brothers bowing down to him by now. Surely he had his doubts. God uses the shadows of Joseph's life, and God uses the shadowy areas of our life to shape us and make us. Joseph begins to excel in prison, chapter 39, 23. Everything he does prospers. In fact, they, they learn that Joe can really run something. He's an organizer. He's a visionary. He's a manager. And he's in charge, though he's a prisoner, of the whole prison. Just like he'd been charged of Potiphar's house. And God blesses him there. Then a cupbearer for the king and the baker for the king come, cast into prison, 
by the king of Egypt. They, they seem upset, and Joseph says, what's wrong with you? And they say, well, we've had dreams, and we're in prison, and we don't know what our dreams mean. And the cupbearer says, well, I'll tell you my dream, Joseph. There were three branches on a grapevine, and they blossomed, and they made grapes, and I squeezed the grapes in a cup, and oh, oh I got it. God, God, God's telling me, in three days, you'll go back to your job, and you'll hand the cup to the king. That's it. Well, the baker said, that went well for the cupbearer. Now, let me tell you about my dream. I had three baskets of white bread on my head, and in the top basket, there was a ray of baked goods, and the birds came and ate those baked goods out of the top basket. What's going to happen in three days to me? Oh, three days, baskets on your head. Your head will be removed from your shoulders. You will be hung up, and the birds will devour your flesh. Three days pass, the cupbearer gets his old job back, the baker is beheaded. And Joseph says to the cupbearer, when you get out and go back to your old job, would you please tell Pharaoh, I didn't touch Potiphar's wife, I am innocent, I want out of jail. The cupbearer gets out, he forgets to say anything about Joseph, and the story goes on until Pharaoh has a dream. He has a dream that these fat cows come out of the Nile River, and behind them as they're grazing in the grass by the Nile, these gaunt cows, seven in number as well, come out, and they devour the plump, fat, healthy cows. And then he, he's bothered by this dream about the cows. He, he goes back to sleep, and this time he dreams plump ears of grain come out, and they look good. And then Grain scrawny, scorched by the east wind, devours the plump grain, and he calls together all the wise men and magicians of Egypt, and they have no idea what the story's about. And the cupbearer has that aha moment when he says, oh, oh, there's a guy, there's a guy. Oh, I forgot Joseph. There's a guy in prison, and he, God works with him. He can tell you exactly what your dreams mean. And so he says, go and get Joseph. Joseph says, the power is not within me. He's humbled now. It's amazing how the pit and the prison will do that to you. He's not arrogant anymore. I, I don't do this. God does this through me. Oh, it, it's two dreams, Pharaoh, but it's really just one dream. God is telling you what God is about to do. And the fact you dreamed it twice means it's going to happen for sure. It's going to happen quickly. You're going to have seven years of abundant crop, the fat cows, the good grain. Then the scrawny cows and the scorched grain are seven years of famine. And so if you put aside a fifth of your grain during these seven abundant years, then when the seven years of famine come, you will be ready to feed the world. What you need to do, Pharaoh, is find yourself a really bright, wise, good manager. Put him in charge of all the grain. You'll have no worries when the famine comes. I found that man, Pharaoh says. It is you. He gives his ring, puts it on Joe's hand. It's a signature ring. He pulls out the chariot, the royal chariot, and as they go through the Egypt, the people bow down because now Joe is second in the land of Egypt. Joe is now in charge of the grave. Can you look back in your life at those moments when you're disappointed? And you think it's an awful thing? I've had them. Letters of rejection, the word no. You're not our guy. You're not our gal. 
Those times when the doors didn't open or the opportunities didn't avail themselves when you were disappointed, a suffering, a sickness, and realize it's part of God's work in your life. The third thing I want you to see is knowing and not knowing is the essence of faith. Knowing and not knowing is the essence of faith. We have confidence, Romans 8, that though all things aren't good, that God works out all things for the good of those who are his. Joseph began storing the grain just like he said he would, and now in God's land, Jacob is hungry, his family is hungry, his other 11 boys are hungry, and he looks at Reuben, he looks at Judah, he looks at Simeon, and he says, guys, they've got grain in Egypt. The word is, you got to go buy it there. Go get us something to eat. Here they come. Benjamin stays back. Now he's the favorite. He lost one son. Not going to lose another favorite. Here come the ten brothers. They come to Egypt, and Joe is dressed as the vice regal of Egypt, and they do not recognize him, and they come, and they bow down and request that they could purchase some grain. Joseph could control himself no longer, chapter 45, and he ordered all the Egyptians out of the room. He just began to weep out loud. It is said that Pharaoh himself could hear the crying and the weeping of Joseph all the way to the palace. He looked to his ten brothers and said, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? The brothers, you can imagine, are speechless and dismayed. The last time they saw him, he was headed as a slave. In verse 5, chapter 45, Joseph says this, Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. God sent me here to preserve life. Verse 8, it is not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over all Pharaoh's household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Man intended it for evil, but God made it good. You sold me as an evil act, but God made it good. I don't know what your pit is today. Where your prison is found. A woman works hard to get a graduate degree in her field and gets out and no job yet. A father gives himself to a son and then has to give up the son to an untimely death like Jacob thought he had to. A wife looks forward to a lifetime of marriage and then wonders how she finds herself in divorce court. What is left in these obstacles when we lose something that is so dear to us? I'm certainly not saying this morning that loss is not real in your life. The pit was real. The slavery was real. There were years in prison for Joseph. I'm not saying the loss and the hardship isn't there. I'm just saying that you cannot see things as God sees things. Gerald Sitzer lost his mom, 
his wife and his four-year-old daughter in one drunk driving accident. He was left to raise his other children by himself, three generations in his life. His mom was with his wife, who was with their four-year-old when they were hit by a drunk driver. And Sitzer writes these words. To our shock and bewilderment, we discover there's a being in our universe who, despite our brokenness and sin, loves us furiously. And in coming to the end of ourselves, we have come to the beginning of our true and deepest selves. We have found the ones whose love gives shape to our being. We learn simply to be, whether we're divorced or unemployed or widowed or abused or sick or even dying, we allow ourselves to be loved as creatures being made in God's image. Whether our bodies are broken or our thoughts are confused, our emotions are troubled, we start to become hopeful that life can still be good, even though it will never be as it was before. There's nothing you and I can do to protect ourselves from the losses. They're inevitable as old age and wrinkled skin and aching bones and fading memories. There's much we can do, however, to choose how we respond to these shadowy valleys of our life. Knowing or not knowing is the essence of faith. Let us pray. Oh God, I know in this room there are a thousand Josephs and more joining my television. They're not at the end of the story. They're still in the pit. They're not in the chariot yet. They're still in the prison. Give them your grace, your hope, and your love. Maybe there's someone here this morning, oh God, who needs to come and say, Jesus is Lord. He died for me on the cross. He arose from the dead, and I bow down to him. Maybe there are others who would come and won't be a part of this church family, that even today they would come. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.